welcome to another episode of The Short Forms, small summaries of big topics. Today we focus on the neoconservative or neocon movement. I'll outline its history, its participants, its rise to power, and why it is so harmful to humanity. The first thing to realize about the neocon movement is that it and its tributaries have been building and going on for a long time within the United States. In 1949, a man named Leo Strauss began teaching political philosophy at the University of Chicago. Among his more esoteric concepts on the subject of esoterics, he instilled in his students two strong beliefs which make up the core of what has been later dubbed as neoconservatism. This is done via the following statement. Groups of people require two elements to become and remain a society. One, a strict adherence to certain virtues, and two, a unified purpose. While this statement alone seems benign and realistic, his beliefs behind those elements are what you'll find flawed and more than a little crazy. The belief behind virtue, Strauss taught, is that liberalism, aka freedom or liberty, is the enemy of virtue. I'll say that again. He taught that freedom is the enemy of virtue. He said that a society cannot be healthy and its citizens cannot be virtuous or strong in the face of unbridled freedoms. Freedom, in his words, makes people weak and sinful, ultimately leading society to an utter collapse of structure and purpose. He taught that nothing would remain but a writhing animalistic chaos and a tyranny failing to rule it. Virtue, he thought, could only exist through fear of God, countless personal restrictions, and an unwavering obedience to authority, which, if you bother to realize, means his path to virtue is through tyranny. Maybe he figures his strict tyranny would be better than a free tyranny? I don't know, I've never heard of a free tyranny. Anyway, that was the key to his first crackpot belief. Behind the second element of unified purpose lies his second belief, which goes, in order to inspire a unified sense of purpose, the elite of society must tell the nation a grand lie, or, in his words, a noble myth. A lie strong enough for people to believe in, to kill for, and die for. Strauss's preferred myth for any society is, quote, the never-ending fight between good and evil. So he taught his students to tell us the following. The U.S. is the nation of good. Other nations are nations of evil. Evil to be feared and hated. Because it is evil's nature to try to destroy us, we the good must band together in national pride to battle and conquer them first. With the considerable weight Strauss puts on virtue, his second belief is surprisingly devoid of it. In fact, making use of two deadly sins, pride and wrath, breaking two cardinal virtues, courage and justice, and breaking two commandments, thou shalt not lie and thou shalt not commit murder. So I guess it's a bit of the old do as I say, not as I do sort of thing. Now, in order to make this lie sustainable, the nation or ideology chosen to represent evil must be one which we can never realistically defeat. If the battle never ends, Strauss thought, our sense of purpose can remain unified. And that's it. The two core ideas of neoconservatism 
So of course his students, his elite, soon graduated with their heads full of this madness. They went off to work in our nation's capital, where they did their best to implement Strauss's teachings. The first group to represent evil was communism. Democracy was chosen as a word to mean good. Communism and democracy were portrayed as opposites, and the Cold War was on, followed by a good old-fashioned arms race. With nuclear annihilation keeping the US and Soviet militaries in a constant standoff, this looked like the never-ending battle between good and evil they were hoping for. With Element 2 in place, neocons were free under that ultimate threat to strengthen the military-industrial complex for the private interests at home and organize countless brushfire wars abroad. They didn't get so far with virtue yet, but the grand lie was definitely working. An important conflict for the neocons became the war going on in Afghanistan against the occupying Soviet forces. This was where our evil enemy of the future was being created by our CIA and military by way of Afghani soldiers, the Bin Laden family, and Arab convicts from the surrounding countries. The CIA trained, armed, and funded this random bunch, preparing them to fight the Soviets with terror warfare techniques. Things like hidden bombs, indiscriminate casualties, assassination, and torture. The neocons told Reagan to call them freedom fighters, and they were nearly ready to fight. Then, though, a surprising thing happened. The USSR economically collapsed from the inside out, and promptly their military pulled out of Afghanistan. Suddenly there was no Afghani war, and what's more, no endless Cold War enemy. The neocons called it a victory for democracy and freedom fighters everywhere, and then they abandoned the Arabs they'd been supporting, not bothering to disarm them or put them back in prison. They were busy anyhow. They needed to find a new group to call evil. They tried their best, making mountains out of molehills in South America, demonizing any remaining nations that were communists, but nothing much was sticking, not for a while. They were also losing more ground on Element 1, with many successes in the civil rights movement. But they kept at it, bided their time, and looked around for possible allies, such as in the Christian right. Not much happened for a while besides shady deals and secret unions, so I'll talk a little bit more about Strauss and his Islamist counterpart, Syed Kotub. So Leo Strauss claimed his answers for society were deduced by adhering to the unwritten wisdoms of Socrates and Plato. The thing is, they more readily coincide with contemporary practices which power tyrannical structures of people. For example, the following structures utilize similar brands of fear, myth, obedience, and so on. Military forces, organized religions, corrupt governments, educational institutions, most corporations, and many families. Strauss had experienced poignant forms of these structures throughout his life. He was born in Germany to a Jewish mother, attended famous schools and universities of his homeland, served in the military during World War I, then left for Cambridge, England during the rise of Nazism. Shortly thereafter, he immigrated to the United States. So having first-hand knowledge of Judeo-Christian faiths, military, combat, Nazi Germany, the intellectual elite, and the socio-economic elite, it's not too hard to tell where these esoteric truths he claims to have gleaned from the ancients actually came from. 
To give a snippet of just one of these sources, I'll paraphrase Hitler's right-hand man, Hermann Göring, speaking at a war crimes trial. The people can always be brought to the bidding of their leaders. That is easy. All you have to do is tell them that they are being attacked and denounce the pacifists for lack of patriotism and exposing the country to danger, yada, yada. It works the same way in any country. So there's your noble myth right there. With Strauss spewing this idiocy from Illinois in 1949, that very same summer brought the misfortune of Mr. Syed Kutub to Colorado. Kutub was sent from Egypt to study within the United States school system. He spent his time here being disgusted with U.S. culture, informing delusions which were remarkably similar to Strauss's views on the evil of freedom and the need for the elite to lead the masses by use of fear toward virtue. He took this ideal back to Egypt, and when home, he spotted all the things he hated about the U.S. infecting his own country, primarily through its secular British rule at the time. While I'm not going to defend U.S. culture in the 50s or anyone being under British rule, Kutub did take things in an unfortunate direction. He joined a brotherhood trying to form an elite to replace their current government. There was a coup and it was successful, but the new regime didn't want religion dictating government policy. So the religion-based brotherhood turned against the regime they had just backed. Unfortunately for them, the new regime had our CIA on their side. Kutub and the others were then captured and tortured using early CIA techniques. With these years of imprisonment and torture stacked with his already questionable mental health, Kutub lost any and all remaining sanity points. Of course, he continued to write as he lost his mind. And all of this hatred of freedom, human behavior, Western society, and the oppression they inflicted, he summed up in a word called chihilia. He wrote that the only way to counteract this sickness was through violent jihad, or holy war, by any means necessary. All of this he wrote in hope of forming a single Arab nation, ruled by Islamist elite, leading the Arab masses to his vision of being virtuous, pure, and true. Though Qutb didn't have students, he did have readers. One of the most prominent fans of his writing was Ayman al-Zawahiri. He teamed up with Osama Moneybags bin Laden to try and become Qutb's dream of the elite vanguard, to unleash jihad on all the Middle Eastern governments and fellow Muslims infected with jahiliya. Al-Zawahiri's jihad came in the form of hidden explosions and surprise attacks on current government leaders in Arabic nations. Their purpose was to show the masses that these leaders were right to die, since they were infected bringers of further jihilaya to the region. The problem was, this message was not as clear as the rising death toll. They were certainly feared, but also misunderstood. Their hidden bombs started not only blowing up public officials, but also random citizens. The Qutb al-Zawahiri mentality meant everyone but themselves, the elite, needed to be shown they were infected by use of explosions. For a while it seemed their efforts would peter out into obscurity, but they and their neocon counterparts would soon get worldwide recognition. So here we go back to what the Strauss elite were up to. The year is 2000. The world didn't end, and the computers that run our economy didn't all crash and burn. In short, nothing horrific happened after such a buildup of Y2K hype and impending end-of-century doom. 
Bush Jr. had swindled his way into the presidency, and his ratings were falling as his ability to lead, and particularly his ability to speak, were so obviously disappointing. The neocons were running out of ordinary distractions. They needed something big, something horrific. Something that, well, actually a few of them had already written into their game plan, called the Project for a New American Century. They wrote that they needed a second Pearl Harbor, a real or imagined attack on the U.S. to fuel a new grand lie against a new and different enemy. But who could they get to make such an attack? As luck would have it, Al-Zawahiri's financier, Osama bin Laden, had a long-standing grudge against the Bush family for long-standing debt that W borrowed and never bothered to pay back. Now, Osama was still an operative for the CIA, and other members of his family were still dealing regularly with Bush Sr. through the Carlyle Group, but he was also still angry and pretty involved with al-Zawahiri's jihad against, well, nearly everyone in the world at this point, but in particular, Western cultures, especially the U.S., whose CIA had tortured Qutb and abandoned al-Zawahiri's militants. So here they had a group who openly hated the U.S., a group that attacks in a way that most Westerners consider cowardly and terrible, with the very same methods that the CIA trained them to use, surprise attacks, non-standard bombs, terror warfare that often kills civilians. A group that their new friends in the Christian right and their new pals, the Zionists, openly dislike. A group that with a little PR could be seen as the new worldwide enemy. Because unlike communism, this enemy doesn't need an entire country to be run by it. It's an enemy that could potentially set up shop anywhere, with just a few individuals per location. An unbeatable enemy, because it could be anywhere. Anywhere with a bomb. All you need is anger from inhumane U.S. foreign policies, a few weapons, and a little encouragement. The time is September 11th. You all know the year. Now, I don't really know how much of this was planned and how much was simple opportunism on the part of the neocons or the Godabites, but every time I look at it, there's more evidence and testimony pointing toward the neocons planning and executing everything that happened to the Twin Towers and the Pentagon, with their only glitch being the plane headed toward the White House getting shot down by accident. But regardless of which group did the most and which group jumped at the opportunity, both of them did so and it fueled the fires for change on both sides. So all this crashing into things went down, and there was a quick scramble. The neocons pointed fingers in the general area of Arabia. The al-Zawahariites piped up and were proud to take credit. The neocons hired a PR firm in New Jersey, and Judith must protect the scootmeister, Miller, to interview some pathological liar from the Middle East and make up a profile for their new enemy. They called it Al-Qaeda. And in a single news article, they suddenly turned this isolated group of cut-up-breeding nutjobs into a highly sophisticated worldwide terrorist network with cells in every country. Al-Qaeda would represent the enemy, the terrorist enemy, the Muslim enemy, the new evil. The neocons sent W to stand on piles of rubble and spout off their new grand lie to the nation and the world. The message was clear. They hated us because we are good and they are evil. They want to destroy us, so we must conquer them. Over the following months, the Bush regime's message became clearer. They are terrorists. Their name is Al-Qaeda. They hate us for our democracy. They got the news to play footage of the attack 24 hours a day, week after week, for months after the fact. 
They did this for one simple reason. Instill the fear. Where there is fear, close behind is anger, hatred, and violence. And when all four are present, people are easily influenced. The masses of the U.S. were easily convinced that we should retaliate, attack, invade, somewhere, anywhere, just to find the enemy and televise our army blowing it up. The neocons pointed in all directions. Al-Qaeda. It's all over. There. Over here. In Afghanistan. In Iraq. In everywhere that's got oil under it. And here. Right under our noses. Al-Qaeda is here in the U.S. And with that, they got bills through Congress that no one bothered to read. Bills that not only opened the door for indiscriminate military action, but curtailed our civil rights. This time, they not only got Element 2 in place, but they also got Element 1, Virtue, through lack of freedom, and they didn't stop there. Since 2001, they've been corrupting every branch of government at a frantic pace, pushing through no-bid contracts for the military-industrial complex, removing civil freedoms from the country. They've removed countless barriers for industry to pollute and oppress, leveraging two presidential terms attained through massive voter fraud. They've taken over the Senate, the House, and now the judiciary. They've leveraged the popularity and financial power of the evangelical Christian right to work with them in polarizing every issue into a question of virtue and patriotism. They're doing everything they can while the distraction of their new grand lie is being broadcast over and over out through the television. It's been several years now and they're still every bit in power as they were before, ripping our laws and policies to shreds and doing their damnedest to turn the bulk of U.S. citizens and the rest of the world into slaves of the Strauss elites. An uneducated, fearful, breeding Christian mass of human consumers to be controlled then used for whatever purposes of empire building which suit the whims of the rich, the elite. They're in control now, but I doubt they will, and I certainly hope they won't continue to be for much longer. The reason why is because their ideology is intrinsically flawed. It's an ideology that will anger too many people in too many places. Their methods can only work for a short period because their grand lie is so obviously a lie. Their form of virtue doesn't follow along with the founding ideals of this country, that freedom means civil rights and liberties, and most of all, that freedom is good. People are realizing that the neocon Bush administration is working very hard against us on a level not seen in this country for a very long time, and people in greater numbers are getting informed, getting fed up, and spurred into taking our government back back to the needs of real live people in the real world, and away from the neocons' evil fantasy land and human corporate interests who keep their undivided attention. We can't let them continue on this course. There is more at stake now than ever in history. The number of people and places who will face indefinite suffering as a result of the neocon agenda will be unthinkably high if they remain in control. Now that you know why they're doing what they're doing, you can't start soon enough to do what you can to thwart their plans. Thank you for listening to The Short Forms, the Neocon episode. The Short Forms, copyright 2006, Hobie Van Hoos, all rights reserved.